Okay. You ready? Yeah, let's do this. You are listening to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast, a podcast that asks the question, what is peace? What is a peacemaker? And how can peacemaking be disruptive? One that interrupts injustice, that disarms evil, and takes on the arduous and ongoing pursuit of racial reconciliation and racial justice. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast. This is John Williams, and I am with who? Who am I co-hosting with? You are co-hosting, John, with your friend that adores you, Aaron Takeuchi. Hello, everybody. And Aaron, I adore you as well. We are super excited about our guest today. Um, I had the opportunity to meet this wonderful woman a few years ago when she was still in Pasadena. Uh, working at Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, And at the time, she was on her way to Austin, Texas to start some really unique and powerful things. Um, And and she's done that, but her story is so much bigger than that, so much wider than that. And I'm going to, uh, I want to introduce everyone to Janelle Austin. Janelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And Janelle, in doing my research, I found out that you when you are leading something, you like to have other people kind of self give their own bio. And so um, in honor of you and your wonderful style, can you tell our listeners uh, who you are and tell them a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Sure. Um, that That is my style. I do actually let people self-introduce. Um I, so born and raised Minneapolis. Um, I have an undergraduate degree um, from Messiah College in Pennsylvania um, in Christian ministries, uh, global studies. And then I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, earned a master's of arts and intercultural studies, as well as a master's of divinity uh, with a focus in ethics. Um, I started my own company called Racial Agency Initiative, where I work to uh, help people leverage their agency for racial justice, really helping people focus on identifying racism and responding to it within their scope of influence. Um, I love what I do. I love my work. And it was that work. And I, like, I actually started that in Austin. So I, I used to be the, um, the director of operations for the Pinnell Center for African-American Church Studies. And that's where, where we met yes. um, back when I was at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. And I had quit that job and moved to Austin, Texas to heal because I had been involved in a lot of, of race dialogues, facilitations, uh, community organizing, pushing for racial justice, like just, and it just took a toll on me after a while and I needed to heal. And so I moved to Austin, Texas and slept for six months. Wow. Um, <laughs> And I woke up in January 2019 and began to get involved and engaged in Austin, Texas. Um, I started really exploring the intersection between healthcare and racial justice. And I joined the steering team of a nonprofit called Austin Health Commons, which looked at the intersection of health and race. Um, and then I started taking business classes because my my background was in theology. Um and local free business classes. And I started my own company, my consulting company 
called Racial Agency Initiative through there in Austin, Texas. Um, and it was because of all of like my work and my background dealing with race. And I've been, I mean, I've been doing this stuff formally since undergrad, um, my freshman year in undergrad. Wow. And so I, when George Floyd was lynched two blocks away from my childhood home where my mother still lives, uh, my family called me home. And my gut response was, um, I don't think that's the best idea. <laughs> and they were like, what? Why not? They're like, this is what you do. And I was like, yeah, but you have to understand community organizers. Community organizers don't like other people coming in to their territory without them knowing who they are. Like, community organizers are a lot like pastors. Don't steal my sheep. Like, <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I just don't think that's a great idea. And I wouldn't even like have called myself a community organizer. I would have considered myself like a, an advocate more so mm-hmm. um, than a community organizer. But I had a lot of skills and practice from being in LA because anybody who lives in the Los Angeles area just knows that LA stays ready. Like, <laughs> like any day, something right. could, if something were to pop off, like everybody like knows exactly what's to do, how to protest, where to protest, where to go, who's in charge. Like LA just stays ready. Um, and rightfully so when you look at its history in terms of violence and uh, un- civil unrest. And so Minneapolis, not so much. And so <laughs> like who, whoever hears of like civil unrest in Minneapolis, right? It's, um, and racial civil unrest at that. Though it does happen um, in terms of racism in Minneapolis and Minnesota, it's very real. Um, But I just don't think that historically there has ever been a critical mass of of like black folks to be able to feel like that they had enough collective power Hmm. to be able to take a stand for their justice. So what happens in 2020 when you have a city like Minneapolis, sorry, I'm like, this is not, the, I'm moving out of the introduction. Let me go back to the introduction. Um, so yeah, so my mom called me home and I, I flew to Minneapolis um, on May 29th to support um, the movement here in Minneapolis uh, with the intent of being here for two weeks. Uh, I bought a one-way ticket because I didn't know when I'd be coming back and I had one week's worth of clothes and I washed and rewashed and rewashed and lived in those clothes for two months um, <laughs> to the point where people just started talking about me bad. They're like, why, like, why, don't you have any other clothes? <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, I think I need, I think I need to just relocate and come back home. Mm-hmm. And so I moved back home to Minneapolis indefinitely to uh, continue the work. And it's been um, almost eight months now. Mm. Um, we just kind of passed a seven and a half month marker. Um, and so January 26 would mark eight months since the start of the Minneapolis uprising. January 25th was the, I mean, May 25th was when George Floyd was lynched and the May 26th was when the uprising began. Right. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I noticed before we started talking or before you came on, uh, I was telling you how I love words and the importance of words and its usage in terms. And something I'm noticing right off the bat is you keep saying that George Floyd was lynched. Why do you use that term as opposed to George Floyd was murdered? 
uh, by the hands of the police or some other language? That is a great question. Um, I use that term because people need to understand that there is a historical pattern, right? Mm -hmm. The device used may be different, um, but the pattern is still the same. A disregard for black bodies and that you can do whatever you want to that black body, however you want to that black body, because you think you somehow have power over them because of white bodied supremacy. Right. So when so and, and it's also important to understand, because when people try to come, when we talk about police violence against black bodies and, and police killing black people and then the knee jerk response is, well, what about black on black crime? Right. right? Um, and which someone could say it's really person on person crime because you're more likely to harm someone who you live in community with. And when you, we have racial segregation <laughs> in housing um, in the United States of America, like we don't talk about white on white crime or how at the insurrection, uh, Andre Henry, who uh, we both know and are dear friends with, he had mentioned in a call I was on with him, a cop on cop crime. We saw at the insurrection, <laughs> <laughs> cops were fighting cops. Because you had cops in the crowd off duty fighting on duty cops. <laughs> like I was like, I never thought of that before. But yeah, absolutely, right? Nobody's saying that. Like cop on cop crime is an insurrection. But it's important to be able to distinguish that that power dynamic, right? When you have within the context of race in America, white bodied supremacy, um, and this idea that because I'm white, I have more power over you because you are black, and therefore I can harm your body whatever way I desire. Um, that doesn't happen when one black person kills another black person. Right. Um, it's not rooted in that kind of racialized hierarchy where lynching has a history in America of being tied to racial hierarchy. Um, side note, though, like white violence is like very cruel and gruesome, like in the history of right. like even not just like America, but also Europe, like in the, the way Absolutely. in which like Europeans like punish the body yes. is very gruesome. And so thinking that like those traditions were carried over into America and then inflicted upon black bodies as if like, this is just, this is the way it is. Mm. Um, and, but even with, with Derek Chauvin, even more so, like y'all remember the look on his face, like when people are screaming at him, get off the neck right. of George Floyd. Right. And he was like nonchalant about it, like hands in pocket. Yeah. Like I, I know what I'm doing. I'm just chilling. So, and you can't do anything about it because I'm a cop, yeah. and I can arrest you if I want to, yeah. like, and get away with it. All of that was in that moment. In the same way, let's flash back to like Jim Crow mobs of people lynching black folks and then having a picnic afterwards, taking photos. That's right. Like. Getting trinkets, like, like taking yeah, like, body mm -hmm. as souvenirs, yeah. Yep, we're not going to be held accountable for this. So, like, this is just the way it is. That kind of attitude approaching um, the 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 killing of black bodies, the murder of black bodies. It's one step further. It's a lynching. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, also, I, I'm thinking that when you use the word killing, I really, I really, I really like what you're saying, Janelle, because yeah, when you say killing, you can say. He was accidentally killed, but you can't say he was accidentally lynched, right? right. <laughs> you cannot. Absolutely. It, yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, 
you know, also there, in regards to language, there was something else you did say earlier, which was, you know, your mom's like, come home, you're, com- you're a community organizer. But you said that you actually think of yourself more as an advocate. So can you talk us through what the difference is or like, yeah, how, how you see those two bits of language that people could Absolutely. Absolutely. I think now I would say I've, I've operated in a community organizing role on the streets of Minneapolis for the last eight months um, or six months more so. But when I was at Fuller for many years, I was an academic advisor uh, for like seven years. And in that role, I learned how to listen to students and I would have to be like a go-between, a liaison between them and the institution, right? Like different policy changes, different requests the students may have. If they needed a little extra help pleading with the professor to actually give them grace, <laughs> like um, even if the professor needed a little extra help to tell the student no, um, <laughs> like in, in many ways, um, I learned how to be an advocate for students. And so that's how I learned the role of advocacy in terms of being able to understand the policies, understand the institution, understand where things can be flexed and bent. Um, and where things shouldn't be flexed and bent um, and um, how to actually help students uh, give them language to navigate the systems that exist, right? Because most students coming in don't understand the full systems. With me being there seven years, I had a very clear picture of how the systems operated, who did what, if you need to get something done, who did you need to go to? I mean, and that got me in trouble all the time because <laughs> I would be like, you know what? I know the process and the protocol says you need to do X, Y, Z. Um, but I also know that if I do that process and protocol, we're gonna like be around and around and around in circles where we can just pick up the phone and have a conversation with so-and-so who's at the end of that process. Right. Um, and let them know it's common. Like, so they like think it's, so it's not saying, oh, the student is exempt from the process, but what we can do is help that process along and so the student doesn't get lost in the process, yeah. right? Um, and so that's how I learned how to be an advocate, which is different from an ally. An ally is just someone who um, is going to like say, stand in solidarity, they agree with you, they're on your side. Um, they may fight with you, but it doesn't necessarily mean they understand the systems, they understand how to navigate, they understand how to be a go-between and put themselves in between you and the system that you're trying to fight. So like, I think of the ally as someone who's like side by side with you. Is it, would it be kind of like they're in racism 1.0? Like an ally <laughs> oh, I, is somebody that's not that, I mean, they're just starting in their understanding of how deep this this issue truly runs, right? Because I know with John and myself, we are constantly just like, oh my God, I never thought of it that way. So, right, as much as John may read, he's never at the end. It's constant, like that that root of racism runs so deeply. And yeah, when we were having our little conversation prior and just talking about the layers of what people are understanding and not understanding yet, I think that what you're saying about being an activist is something that is extremely necessary. You need to know how to really listen to a person so that you can empathize and then feel complete compassion towards that person. So you can know exactly what your role should be, in -hmm. which case that only with those skills can you move into community organizing, right? 
Absolutely. Like competence and confidence are like two key things that people need to have in order to be an effective advocate. Um, you need to know what you're talking about um, and you have to have the confidence to talk. Yeah. <laughs> to talk about <laughs> it. Um, as, as far as like, like 1.0 numbering system, everyone has a different gauge in their mind, but I will say allyship is a spectrum. And so someone who just like got woke, quote unquote, like 10 seconds ago, I don't want them fighting side by side with me. They have too many questions. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Just, like they're, I am not the person. Like put them beside another white person who's just maybe a step ahead of them. <laughs> but I, I am not the person um, because I, I'm too, I'm too deep in, and I need to be making calls, and I need to be making strategic calls, and so I can't deal with onboarding people onto what is racism in America in that kind of one-on-one capacity. Like in a setting like this, where it's like, if you're speaking to the masses on a panel through a podcast, like for a moment in time, yeah, that's one thing. But when you're actually in the fight and strategizing, like now's not the time, boo. Um, find somebody else. (laughs) It sounds harsh, but it's, it's critical because when you're in the middle of a fight, you have to understand what are everyone's strengths and where can we best utilize everybody's strengths. And so, um, and that is something that we've always had to navigate and work through here in Minneapolis is learning what people's strengths are and how we put them in places where their strengths um, can be maximized. And then like when it's downtime, when you don't have to be on guard, then that's an opportunity for you like to connect and see like where there's room for collaboration and things like that. but when it's when it's not downtime, right. like being able to respect the boundaries of what people are there to do, um, and not like be pulling on their coattails and saying, "Hey, how can I help? What can I do? What can I do?" It's <laughs> like you can first stop bothering me. <laughs> like, but um, so yeah, uh, that but but that's that's an entire other conversation. But yeah, but there's also community organizing though. There's organizing and there's mobilizing. Those are two different things. Like organizing, being able to bring people together and get people on the same page. And then mobilizing, being able to equip people to actually act, right? right? And to act mindfully and strategically. So there's all kinds of levels to the work that needs to be done. And when you don't understand that, you could potentially cause more harm to the community then help because people will be looking at you to say, well, you're the community organizer. He's like, yeah, but I'm not a community mobilizer. I don't have that skill set. And so you have to make sure that on your team, you have people with the different skill sets, which is why it's so important not to have just one leader. Um, You have to have multiple leaders that specialize in their areas um, because that that's going to lend strength to the movement. Um, That's going to lend strength to the people. And frankly, that's going to help build community better than anything else, because people will be able to understand, I may not plug in with you, the work that you're doing, but I may plug in over there with the work that that person's doing, because that's where my gifts and strengths lend. Um, So, uh, yeah, that uh, those are those are things that I've learned on the ground over the course of the last eight, eight months or seven and a half months. Yeah, I I really appreciate you really breaking that down because I think there is this myth that when you think of a community organizer, it's 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 either one person or a small collective group of people that do everything. And and this type of work in order to um in order to address systemic racism, you have to create new systems and you have to be strategic and you have to 
it, it just has to be or, organized in a way where, like you said, there's different, almost like different departments or different groups of people who do different things to attack this. And so often, I think within that myth of it's just one person and we have this this narrative, this wrong narrative historically, you know, there's Dr. King, there's, there's always this one person that right, quote unquote, rises to the top. And we never, or rather, yeah. we rarely look at how many people supported that one person. Absolutely. Up. So, so I love Absolutely. It down. Yeah. You know, like an example of this, though, because at George Floyd Square, the way we function is, is in, in uh, divisions. Um, and so we have security division, we have food division, uh, we have preservation division, and that's where, uh, where I take lead in terms of the caretaker. Um, we have medical division, we have like, we have all these divisions, we have drinks, so we have drinks and beverages, <laughs> and then food is a separate division from drinks and beverages, right? Um, and so like all these different divisions, because people have different strengths, we had, we had a music or arts and music division for like helping people think about how does like music and art like engage into the movement. But uh, one, there's one guy who actually lived on the intersection and watched George Floyd die from his window. Um, and he was so traumatized. He stayed inside for a long time. Nobody knew he existed. And then he started coming out to like community meetings. Um, and he, he tried the barricades one night, um, doing security. Um, and he told me, he told me the story later that he's like, he struggled so bad. He, he tried. He was like, that was just not for him. And then he was like, but he was asking me, he was like, what can I do? And I was like, well, what are you good at? What are your skills? And he's like, well, I make a mean chili. And I was like, well, have you checked with the food division and ask them if you could be a part of that? He's like, well, he's like, yeah. And I told him that I could, I could totally tell that he wasn't excited about that. Right. And then I said, well, I saw you cleaning out the sidewalks earlier today with, um, he was taking weeds out of the, the sidewalk cracks. Right. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> His eyes lit up. Oh. I was like, I got you. I was like, okay, you belong with me. You belong with me in caretaking. So let me give you a tour and onboard you into what it means to be a caretaker here. And so I did that that night. I onboarded him into caretaking. He became a caretaker. He decided that he wanted to focus on outdoor caretaking as opposed to indoor caretaking because we have like we have an indoor and outdoor because of the offerings that need to go into conservation right. um, versus the offerings that stay outside in their protests. And he said, I, did, I don't trust myself with offerings, so I'm just going to stick to cleaning the streets. I'm not going to do that. As winter came, there became donations of wood right. for fire pits right. and like donations of trees rather. And so we needed to chop the trees into pieces of firewood. <laughs> and he began doing that. And out of that, he actually created his own division called the fire division. And like, that's what they do. They just literally focus on firewood because there's so much of it. It just, it branched out of caretaking. And um, he, he started his own like um, fundraising stream for that particular division. And he cares for it. And we still talk and we still engage. And because our divisions um, intersect very easily. And so... Um, so that's a beautiful example and a story of like, just trying to figure out like, where do your gifts fit in and leaning into that, but then also being able to develop to say, okay, this needs to be its own thing. So how do we allow somebody else to take that and run with it 
And, and the challenge to leadership is to not feel like that you have to control everything because that used to be under you. Like I could say this guy used to be under mine. And so everything that he does is under my umbrella. Like, right, right. no, like what, what for? Like, is this is not a power grab. We're pursuing justice here. And he's pursuing justice by chopping wood. And I haven't picked up an ax all year long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyways. No, that's good. I, I want to pause for a moment and, and back up a little bit. Um, we really jumped right into the the work that you're doing, and I love that. But but there's something in your extended bio that I really want to point out, and and I want to kind of hear more about. And so, in your extended bio, it says Janelle grew up bicultural. She was distinctly formed by both her black family, church, and neighborhood, and her white Christian private schools. At age 13, you began traveling internationally. By 18. You would travel to Mexico, South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, England, Kenya, and the Dominican Republic. In that order, <laughs> these cross-cultural experiences made you reflect on what it meant to be Black in America. Can Man, there's just so much in that, but can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by bicultural and how in the world did you have the boldness to kind of do those things at such a young age? Um, I'm my grandmother's granddaughter. And to answer to your second question, I just wired that way. Like I, <laughs> my my parents looked at me puzzled too. Like that, like <laughs> I went to uh, Botswana and Zambia. Uh, well, that that trip to Southern Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa was all like one trip in the summertime. Um, and I had signed up for it with an organization that I just had learned about through a youth conference. And my parents were looking at me crazy, like, you're literally going to go across the Atlantic Ocean yeah. by yourself with nobody that you know, with a whole bunch of strange people. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was 14 at the time, or 15 at the time. Yeah. And, I, and I was one of the youngest people on the trip, I believe. And I picked the hardest trip I could go on. That was the funny <laughs> part, too. It was like in the bush, we were camping, um, fighting off hyenas, doing all kind of crazy wow. stuff. Um, <laughs> And I loved it. And actually, one of my best memories ever exists on that trip. And that was being out in the middle of the bush. We walked away from the campfire, turned off of our flashlights, looked up and saw more stars in the sky than we saw a velvet backdrop. Oh, wow. And I had never seen that before growing up in a city. Right. And so th that is a privilege that I will always carry with me that I know that not a lot of people will have or can have yeah so traveling was just the thing that i i just i loved cultures and yeah. i just figured out found a way to make it happen because when you're a kid like there's all kinds of youth trips right. <laughs> right. you trip there you trip there you just gotta figure out how to raise the fund uh which i do have fundraising trauma now as an adult <laughs> um, <laughs> my daughter um when she was 16 she did something similar she she went to China. Uh, she out of the blue. She had developed this desire to learn Chinese, to learn Mandarin, mm -hmm. and you know we encouraged it. And then she came to us and said, "Hey, I want to go on this five week immersion trip to China." And we helped fundraise because we wanted her to have a piece of that. So I'm sorry about the trauma, um, <laughs> but but nonetheless, I mean it does it does so much. And, and our kids have been to Malaysia and Singapore. And so, so that's why I think for me, it stood out in your bio. How has that impacted the work that you do now? 
Yeah. Let me quick first answer the yep. bicultural thing. Sure. Uh, because bicultural is important because that's how I learned how to navigate between black and white worlds is growing up in a white Christian institution, learning that language and then blowing, growing up in a black neighborhood and black church and learning those languages helped me navigate different spaces. And so when W.E.B. Du Bois talks about um, double consciousness, right. right? And today we talk about code switching. Um, that like that's I learned how to do it from a young age. I was born into that. So I don't even think about it. Right. Um, and I don't even and so like even coming back to Minneapolis this summer, people try to question my blackness, people try to question my credentials for being there. People I like people tried, they tried hard, uh, but it didn't phase me because I had a kind of confidence that was rooted in. Um, having to navigate multiple worlds and I knew what to expect and I knew how to navigate that pressure. Whereas there's some people in the community who like black folks would be like, they really grew up in whiteness and they struggle to be black. Like they're struggling with their black identity, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, it, and it's obvious, like they're, they're bleeding that struggle. And so I don't have that struggle because I also had a family that was uber black. Um, my dad was a Black Panther Chicago chapter. Okay. Uh, my grandmother, when we went to Philly to visit her, made us go to Freedom Theater. And yeah. if you're ever in Philly, like <laughs> Freedom Theater is all where all the black kids go to learn how to be black <laughs> at Temple University. Like, so, so I did have all of those experiences. And large, by and large, because my um, my grandmother especially was very concerned that if my parents were choosing to put us into white institutions, that we wouldn't have a cultural education. Right. So they were overcautious <laughs> about giving us that cultural education at home and at church. So, um, but yeah, so it, it does shape how I'm able to move in spaces now here in the movement, what tables I'm able to sit at. Like I've sat at the negotiation tables with the mayor, being able to craft a resolution knowing how to do that. And I didn't, I'd say I'm the transcriber of it. So we listened to the voices of the community and then I like just typed it up and like wrote it down. So I don't say I'm the author of it. Right. The community, people in the community are the authors. I'm the, just the transcriber. But my my experiences led me to, um, led me the privilege of being able um, to offer those like skill sets to navigate in white spaces, but also in black culture. Um, which is important in a movement for Black liberation because you're fighting against white systems and you constantly have to go back and forth um, between the two. Yeah, that's good. So let's go to the George Floyd International Memorial. Did I say that correctly? Global, global memorial. Global memorial. How, how did that come about? And And again, talking about terms, I noticed that it's global memorial and not, you know, just the George Floyd memorial and Absolutely. that as well. Yeah. The family actually came up with that, that name. And so I think um, I remember like pitching the idea of George Floyd living memorial okay. because on the ground, what I had noticed was that every day the memorial looked different because of the way people engaged it. And so it really was in many ways a living memorial. And the family came back and said, we want global memorial. I was like, cool, that's what, that's what it'll be. Like, <laughs> it's, just, it's your family member. Um, and so y'all get to choose, it's your memorial. It's, it's for the family in black culture, whenever there's a memorial, it's for the family. Um, so they get priority. So on the 26th, when the uprising began, like in black culture, people 
begin to memorialize those who unjustly died um, in the place in which they died, right? So that's, you can literally drive anywhere in the United States. And if you're in a black or Latino community or Latinx community, you will see like little altars yep. to people. And you just know that somebody died there. There'll be balloons, there'll be candles, there'll be pictures, there'll be things. Um, and so the community started coming out and laying things down. Artists started coming out and installing murals and all kinds of stuff. So the black community had like an altar that like at the place where George Floyd like died, right? right. Then you had the indigenous community come through and mm. they did this spiral that it was significant to their cultural context and how they grieve and the spiritual aspects. So a spiral of the bouquets of flowers mm-hmm. like was organized. The military tanks drove through that when uh, the governor had ordered the National Guard on the ground and that's when the community was like, nope, no police allowed. <laughs> like they threw up barricades of fences, couches, trash cans, refrigerators, buses, like anything they could find. Trash bags was like there. And then they reorganized the center of the intersection from a spiral into a circle of flowers. And then someone built a giant dream catcher. And then eventually that giant dream catcher went into the center of those flowers. And then somebody else overnight threw up a 12 by 12 foot portrait of George Floyd. And then the fist came and was put like near, like in front of the center of George Floyd. And then three days later, apparently in the evening, I would never go in the evenings because I was an introvert. The evenings is when the extroverts were extra. So I would just always make sure that I was at home. I could hear them from my house. And I was like, I'm not going. And so I would just be surprised every morning I'd go at 6 a.m. to say, what does it look like today? And then one morning it moved, they they had moved the fist. I actually saw a photo that somebody took. They had moved the fist to the center of the intersection. And then, then someone built a garden around it. And then somebody else built a garden on the side of the street um, and not too long after that. And then more and more offerings came and then people brought potted plants. And then one morning I woke up because I started, I started tending to the memorial on June 1st. May 31st was when I was in a protest and a truck was coming through the protest. And I looked up and I was like, there's a truck coming right at us. (laughs) And then we turned to run and my sister fell. And there was the trauma of thinking that she was going to get trampled by people. And I like lift her up and and to get her off the ground, we start running. And then somebody screamed gun. Somebody had a gun. And we're like, what in the world? (laughs) And so now we're running from someone having a gun. And then we're almost out of the, like the highway. And then um, this girl next to me claps with a panic attack slash asthma attack. And I catch her on her way down. And that was like the most traumatizing day. And I was like, I woke up the next morning and I said, you know what? I think I'm just going to go tend to the memorial as my protest. Like, and as long as we keep it clean and neat, the city can't bulldoze it. They can't come through and say, no one's tending to it. And so I'm just going to make sure that I tend to it every morning. And this will be my protest and my self-care. Yeah. So that's how I started on June 1st. And many days there was just two of us, me and, and Paul, who's a neighbor. And um, he's an older white man. And so whenever someone asked if they could help, he'd always defer people to me. Okay. And so, so the people started asking me for leadership in terms of how we streamline caretaking so everyone's doing it the same way. And so that's how I became lead caretaker. Like <laughs> I was really there for myself, for my own healing, but then also for the movement for Black liberation. And so by two months had passed and I said, okay, this has been enough time where we can now contact the family and ask, we need to ask them for their advice and input because we couldn't go any further without 
their input. Right. And um, I reached out a cold call with a Facebook messenger message mm -hmm. and they replied back and they're like, I like your story is probably one of the most powerful stories that we've read and we want to meet. And wow. so we met, we showed them everything, like especially inside because they hadn't seen inside where we were uh, doing the preservation work. Um, and I asked them like, do we want to like form an organization that would govern the pieces? Because there's a lot of fight in the street around ownership. Right. And people were trying to commodify the pieces. People were trying to make money. People were trying to auction the pieces off. People were trying to claim like all kinds of stuff. Like I was like people trying to claim family status. Like it was crazy. And so I just said, you know what? Like if we set up a nonprofit, no one owns anything. Right. Like it just, we just govern it and we can govern it together between the community and the family. Um, because most of the family was in Houston and North Carolina and he had George Floyd has one aunt here. Oh, wow. And so we talked through that and she said, you know, in Houston, they have a foundation in North Carolina, they have a foundation. She was like, George Floyd chose to make his life here. So it makes sense for like a memorial to be here. Mm -hmm. And so let's create this organization. And this is what the family wants it to be called the George Floyd global memorial. And so all the caretakers were all volunteer. I still volunteer. Everybody volunteers. Um, and I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's powerful. And those pieces are so powerful. And I think, I believe that those pieces are what's going to help heal us. Um, because I call them creative expressions of pain and hope. Uh, collectively, we call them offerings. They are powerful. It's artist protest. And because it's artist protest, we, we try to, and they've come from little children. Like we get pieces that are just crayon scratches. Right. And then they've come from professional artists and, and everybody in between. Um, there's personal items that people lay. Uh, one lady uh, offered uh, a baby bassinet, which was from her deceased baby. Oh my God. Um, that she offered at the memorial. And the memorial really holds everybody's grief and that's what's so powerful about it there was a morning passage that an artist uh, installed where it's a list of 168 names of black people who are unjustly murdered by the police and just to walk along that path right. in the middle of the street to see those 168 names and recognize there are names that you don't know they were names that were never a hashtag because they died before hashtags was even a thing oh my God. it's powerful um, and so this is what we, we, we caretake. This is what we tend to, um, as a community and within the division of preservation and, and, and caretaking. And this is what the memorial is, is about. Yeah. I, you know, I love listening to your explanation of, of this memorial, because as you were talking about how every time you turned your head to look at it, it had changed or evolved. It's like, it, it was this living, pulsating, breathing element, right? And that there were pieces of art that were in spirals and then they became circles and then be, they became protective walls and there were trucks that ran through it. And, you know, as you're talking about this, it just makes me think about the life of George Floyd, right? So there's all these different aspects within a person's life that creates different um, scenarios. And, and, you know, like I'm just also comparing it with some of the memorials we had here in Los Angeles and how, you know, it's scheduled for this day, everybody goes, they lay out their flowers, 
and then the flowers die and then there's trash everywhere and then it disappears. But I love the fact that now you're talking about how this is a place where people brought things that represented the pain and the brokenness that they've experienced in their lives as well. And how it's actually something where there are caretakers to maintain this, Mm -hmm. this understanding, this, Mm -hmm. this thing that this horrible thing that happened in our history to some, something hopeful and brighter, I think. Right. That's just beautiful. Yeah. I want to, you know, we call it a sacred space. And I think that's, that's something significant. And um, the, the billboards were actually bought out and black art was put there. So there's actually no capitalism in the space. I love that. Um, And it's like a block, like, so the intersections are blocked. It's like two blocks long and two blocks wide. That's, that's blocked off. Um, And so I think, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it is a living memorial. Um, and, and, oh, that's what I was going to say, the, the greenhouse. So wintertime, we built a greenhouse to keep all of the potted plants alive. And I had consulted farmers and they're like, we don't do greenhouses in the winter because the plants won't grow. Like we'll do seedlings in the winter, but we don't do like greenhouses for full blown plants. That doesn't work. Somehow it's working. <laughs> like literally, we just neighbors who are builders. They're like, "Yeah, we'll build you a greenhouse." And then another neighbor who actually works in plants was like, "I got a couple of heaters." And then the other folks were like, "Yeah, you can borrow our electricity." Like we're talking like mutual aid at its finest. Um, and we're like, "Well, here's hoping that it works," um, and it's been working. But then the some of the protest pieces and signs we've actually kept and allowed to freeze in the memorial because um, we we wanted the memorial, a place where George Floyd, um, there's the memorial is big, but then we divide it up into sections. And so we say the place where George Floyd took his last breath. Right. That place, caretakers had a conversation and we decided that we didn't want to protest um, against winter. We wanted to protest with winter. And so we were like, yeah, these pieces get to free. Um, and that's okay. Like that is part of their protest. And so when we say we live in the balance between preservation and protest, like making these critical calls to say, well, when does a piece go inside for conservation and how long does it get to stay out to live its full life of protest? Um, and so those are constant ethical decisions that we are, we are making, uh, as we go. Janelle, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, um, so we take folks on Southern civil rights tours and go through different museums, but we always go to New Orleans to see the connection between slavery and what happened to Katrina. And over the last couple of years, we've had a professor named Dr. Ashley Howard speak and uh, talk to our group. And she specializes actually in looking at the history of, of protests and, and the questions that she asked us that she challenged us with, go really to the heart of what you're talking about. And she asked, told us to think about these three questions. One, how do these narratives in the, within the community undo or redo racism? Uh, the second question, how do we center the experiences uh, of the folks that have been marginalized and oppressed without falling into a narrative of victimization? And then the third one is, where do we see people's humanity? How do we capture and uh, that expression of their humanity and the divine that's within them. And in this work, this memorial, 
that you and and all the people in that community have done um, really answer those questions so powerfully. You're preserving narratives. You're keeping the narrative within the Black community and the Black experience. Um, you're centering those narratives, and and you're definitely keeping the dignity of of not only George Floyd but also of his family. And and that is just so marvelous. And that is uh, holding and preserving the divine. It's just, incre- mm-hmm. just incredible. I, I have to say though, that it wasn't my idea. I was caretaking and a community member walked up to me and said, can't give this stuff over to a museum. And I was like, what? They're like, when Philana Castile was murdered, all the offerings from the memorial, the family had decided to lend it to the Minneapolis Institute of Art for people to see, for people to go visit, for because it's an existing institution and they'd have the capacity to handle it, right? They did not curate the story mm. in, in a way that the Black community felt honored and respected. And they were the Black community was just still upset. And they were just like, nope, we're not doing this again. Like, And they're like, we're building our own museum. And I kept hearing that from different people. Like, we got to build our own museum. We're building our own museum. We got to build our own museum. But yeah, it was really the community who kept repeatedly telling me, we've got to do our own. We got to build our own museum. And so me, being who I am, was like, okay, (laughs) with all my theology degrees, of course, I'm just going to build a museum. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, it was in talking to my... um, I have a wonderful group of of women friends who are from uh, my time in Pasadena. And we were talking and they said, Janelle, uh, a rememory. Tamisha Tyler, who's doing her PhD in Black literature. She said, in the the tradition of Toni Morrison, you have to do a rememory and not a museum. Because if this is going to be a Black space, even the constructs and the idea around which you built this have to be black. And a rememory is uniquely black because Toni Morrison co- coined the word. Um, and it really is about walking through a space and remembering what happened and allowing that space to shape you and commission you and form you. And so that's what I tell folks. I'm like, we're, we're not even building a museum. We're building a rememory. Like y'all ain't gonna come here and just take photos and, and leave. Y'all going to come here and re-experience the power of the pieces because the pieces still protest. I, I tell people, those protest signs that were laid as offerings went through protests and absorbed the energy of those protests, were laid at the memorial, and they still carry that energy. Wow. Like, these pieces still protest long after the people who have laid it have left. Um, and they're powerful so powerful um, and people need to re-experience that and remember what happened so we one don't repeat the same mistakes as a society and two allow those pieces to commission us to continue to practice racial justice because no yeah. justice no peace you had y'all had a question about peace <laughs> yes that's what we we're gonna ask actually but before we get to that i just want you said something about uh you know doing this kind of work can make you make everybody crazy um, and yeah, that's true. I'm wondering how you keep yourself grounded doing this because you have got a lot on your plate, a lot of things that you're working on. I do. Um, so I don't always succeed. Let me just say that first. Um, 
someone said to me once, they're like, Chanel, you do everything. I said, no, I don't. I don't do my chores. And my mom's mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) And that like, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot to balance uh, what it means to be, because I remember I relocated home. And so I had to learn how to live with family again. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn how to not live by myself again um and make that adjustment at the same time as I'm navigating the trauma of being black in America I in 2018 I started Mondays as my me days my self-care days so I keep that um recently last week we had a 6,000 blanket drop um from United Healthcare to distribute to the greater Twin Cities area and so I've been kind of taking um lead on that to distribute the blankets and that work is mundane work and that helps me heal Mm. um unfortunately for my community members uh, i learned a long time ago that when i am burned out and broken i talk a lot like a lot a lot and because like the talking actually like helps me release the trauma and then when i'm healthy and well i i'm like short of words, like I don't have anything to say. Like literally my brain will be like, I have nothing to say, so I don't need to comment. And so I, sometimes I talk a lot and people will people will mock me. Like one guy yesterday was like, like, yeah, nobody wants to listen to a 10 hour sermon. <laughs> like, <laughs> Ouch. you don't even know what I'm capable of doing <laughs> when I'm broken. I didn't say that to him, but he doesn't, he didn't know my trauma. He didn't know my, he didn't know that part about me. Most people didn't know that right. about me. Um, and so it did sting a little, but I have to remember, like, I understand why I talk and in living every day in a protest community and going almost every day to a place where someone was lynched, where you're constantly reminded of the pain and the trauma, Um, living where you can hear the helicopters, um, where the National Guard is coming down your street and you're yelling at your siblings to get in the house because you don't want them to get shot. Mm. Um, the trauma that we went through as people who lived in this community and then on top of that um, then to know that you're being elevated to this responsibility of leadership and um, and you're doing what you can to fight for your liberation and for that of your people and you're offering what you can. And I had just slept for six months and right. <laughs> done a lot of healing work in Austin. And so I had a little bit more capacity to engage and a little bit more rhythm to engage. And so I was like, I can last a little bit longer than other folks. Mm. And that if I can just last long enough, then somebody else will come and replace <laughs> me. And then I can go and get my rest. That didn't happen. <laughs> so I had to find ways to... Um, take a break once someone um gifted me um a two-night stay at a bread and breakfast and that was wonderful and to be able to just get away um but the trauma is real and and I don't always carry it like openly and publicly and um someone gave me oh it's right here somebody gave me this pin the other day 
this Wonder uh, Woman pin. Know. And it's so fascinating when she gave it to me. I had mixed feelings about it. I was like, oh, that's so kind that she sees me like that. But then I'm like, that's a lot of responsibility. Right. Um, and because I'm I'm human. Yeah. I'm not part God. <laughs> <laughs> not them God. <laughs> um, and so uh, there's a sociologist who's been doing sociological research on our movement over a long period of time. And I find reprieve in talking to him because he likes to listen to me for hours on end and I can talk for hours on end uh, to help undo the trauma. And because he's in academia and I miss academia, like it's a fit and I love sociology and he is a sociologist. So we just get along. And then, so when his daughter comes to town because his daughter is a high school student in I think 10th grade um, and because of online school, He'll bring his daughter into town and we'll hang out and she'll help me with caretaking and I'll just kind of put her to work as volunteering. And I'm like, that's a super cool opportunity as a 10th grader um, to be able to uh, have this experience. And so because your dad's a sociologist, like that's just kind of cool. But um, but yeah, so those are ways in which I've been able to try to navigate the trauma when I, I have a ton of like media interviews in like different time periods um and I remember like every time that I would talk about the offerings or talk about the people who died or remember like I would just be in tears and I'm not normally a crier but then I learned from my therapist that I have to be able to let the tears out because they're healing and they'll help me yeah. um, recover so mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I have a therapy, a therapist. Um, I actually care about like mental health stability, um, and I acknowledge that mental health is a real thing, and I, that I need to navigate it my uh, my own and watch my own. And I'm not always good at that. I'm good at telling other people that they need to watch their mental health and do self care. I actually started. A program. A, a, a chiropractor came, came up to me. He came up to me uh, while I was sweeping the streets. And he said, "Can I help?" And I was like, "Well, I'm about finished. What do you do for a living?" He's like, "I'm a chiropractor." I was like, "I've got something better for you." <laughs> um, and then out of that relationship, and then I called up the Northwestern Health Sciences University, and then I called up Potterham Park Neighborhood Association, and we started the Restorative Wellness Response Project, yes. which is really about. Um, helping people practice self-care as a form of resistance to injustice. And so that is something that we have put energy and effort into and that we absolutely promote with integrative health practitioners. And so it's not just like going to see your primary care doctor, but it's practicing yoga, massage therapy, acupuncture, mindfulness, meditation, behavioral therapy, talk therapy, whatever it is. Right. Food, like we always make sure that there's food involved, um, art, uh, music. And so, so yeah, but. There's a quote that, um, that I got from you where you talk about pursuing racial justice with joy. And it seems like this is part of the, this restorative wellness response project and some of what you've talked about S- sounds a little bit like that. Can you elaborate more, a little bit more on your quote of just uh, pursuing yeah. justice with joy? Justice with joy, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so oftentimes what happens when you get a, a moment of obvious injustice, people get angry and upset 
and they get up they're like i'm gonna march i'm gonna do something but it's like it's this anger this rage this frustration this fear this anxiety that's driving them and then they go they have all this energy they have this high and then they come down with like a hard crash and it's not like sugar like you get a high and then you come down um joy however is a more sustainable energy um joy whenever you think about whenever you do something that you know you're good at you know you have strengths in um and you finish it it's like it just like makes you happy like yeah i did that and then you're willing to do more and you're willing to keep going um because joy provides a more sustainable strength it's more like a um a complex carbohydrate where it'll last longer and so when we are able to center our work on the things that we know that we're good at when we center our work on our strengths and the things that we know will give us joy um and then also center our rest on the things that we know will give us joy in life um, that will actually be more of a renewable and sustainable energy for us to move. And that's so essential for racial justice because otherwise you'll have a lot of people who are just burned out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to avoid the burnout as long as possible, um, we need to be able to center joy in our work, which is why it's so important for us to operate in a movement according to our strengths and not according to what we think we can do, mm-hmm. but um, according to what uh, we are gifted and talented um, to do and then allow other people to operate in their strengths as well. We'll go longer further um, and um, and throughout the entire duration. I'm not going to say faster because it's not always fast. Right. Time takes as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but th- it doesn't mean that we don't need breaks. It doesn't mean that we don't need, it's just, it just means that the source of the energy is actually more sustainable and renewable. Yeah. As we start to wind down this conversation, I, we both could honestly talk to you all day, but that would be taking away from your joy and your rest. And we don't want to do that. But um, so our, the title of our podcast is Disruptive Peacemakers. And we mm-hmm. try to ask all of our guests, what, um, what is peacemaking for you? And, and I'm really eager to hear your response to someone who does organizing and activism work. What is what does peacemaking mean for you and even the disruptive peacemaking? Yeah. So I once wrote a poem on peace during Advent, went around and asked a bunch of people, what is peace? What does peace mean to you? In reflecting on that project, I think what peace means to me really is about like that kind of shalom being whole, right? It's not like the absence of violence. It's not the absence of noise. Um, but it's, it's being whole. Um, and so peacemaking, making people whole, that's the process of justice. If to be just means to be right, and justice is the process of making things right. Um, shalom is that end goal of things, all things being made right, all things being made well. Justice is the process of getting there, which means the work of justice is indeed peacemaking. So disruptive peacemaking is the kinds of protests that need to happen for people to understand that there is something wrong in the first place and justice needs to happen, mm-hmm. right? I tell, I tell the city council members all the time, the reason why the intersection is blocked off is because that something is not right and it's disruptive so people can understand that something needs to be done. Because at the moment y'all move those barricades, people will forget. Right. And we can't allow that to happen. Um, you all asked the question, I may jumping ahead of you because I'm just going to flow right in, but y'all asked the question about a Bible verse yeah. that would, a Bible passage or Bible story 
that I thought would align with this. Um, and I thought about that and I chose the Exodus. Okay. The, the story, story of-, of the Exodus. Disruptive peacemaking. Why? Because God is trying to take a group of people uh, who have been oppressed for over 400 years and bring them into shalom. Yes. Um, And in order to do that, God has to send (laughs) COVID-19. God God has to send the flu. God, God has to send the pox and the measles. The economy has to crash and um, there has to be <laughs> some uh, political upset. Um, yeah. Pharaoh in charge, the president in charge, um, is not getting his way, even though he keeps saying, no, I, I want it to happen my way. Um, and so God has to do all of these divine things, the weather, the system is disrupted um the earth is disrupted the water is disrupted in order to be able then to lead a group of oppressed people out by way of looting the nation that oppressed them Mm. um into a process that will help them become whole as a people as a collective right not individually right but but their wholeness is dependent upon each other and uh, each other generationally, intergenerationally, right? And the generations to come. Peacemaking, disruptive peacemaking is the process of liberating the most oppressed within your communities. Mm. Um, So that way they can have shalom and we all can have shalom. Because in that passage, it also says that a mixed multitude left Egypt, right? Right. So it wasn't just it wasn't just Hebrews that left Egypt, but there's a whole lot of people who got freed that day. Right. Um, and so I understand that in my work, the disruptive peacemaking, this protest is leading to leading us to a kind of liberation, a kind of black liberation that is not just going to free black people, but it's going to free us all. And I understand that God is fighting our battles. Yes. I can peacefully protest because the disruption comes less from me and more from God. And so, and I participate in the protest that I believe that God started because by the time I got to Minneapolis, people were already had said it was a sacred space. Right. Sacred spaces are created for the divine to be present or the sacred spaces are named that because the divine is already there. Right. More importantly, um, and so we sustain the space, knowing that God is already here, and God is fighting our battles with disruptive peacemaking. God is the ultimate disruptive peacemaker. We just fall in line so that we can be free. Incredibly powerful. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> you okay with it, Aaron? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> That's amazing. So. Um, I I want to respect your time. So what is uh, two last questions? One, a, a book or some sort of recommendations for our listeners? And then what is a what is a question that our listeners should be asking themselves in this moment that we're in currently? 
Oh, a book it needs to be Michael Eric Dyson's Long Time Coming. He just dropped it at the end of 2020. And it's like going through the various murders and lynchings of Black bodies um, in um, 2020 alone. And then he actually goes back as well um, into some atrocities before 2020. I, I think that is an important book. Uh, I won't give it away, but like I, I saw it when I was in the store, it was being marketed. And I was like, what's this book? So I, because it was talking about George Floyd and I was like, who's trying to tell us about this protest and they ain't even here. <laughs> and I read that book. I was like, yes. And I sent it to everybody who was protesting here in uh, Minneapolis and George Floyd Square. And I said, y'all need to read this. Wow. Like, so that long time coming, Michael Eric Dyson. And then the, what was it? Like a step? Yeah, what, what's the question okay. that people should be asking themselves in this? Question. Yeah. Yes. Black people, to my Black people, uh, we need to be asking ourselves, what does Black liberation look like? Uh, because we are not monolithic. Um, whiteness will only want to give us one outcome. Mm. Uh, we deserve better than that. And therefore, in order to articulate what we do deserve, we all must reflect on our experiences and our talents, our occupations, and ask ourselves, what does liberation look like for me in these spaces? Mm. Uh, and the more we articulate that, the more clearer the mosaic of what Black liberation looks like becomes. Because no one person alone should be answering that question, what is Black liberation? Mm -hmm. um, it's going to require all of our voices. Yeah. To people who are not Black, listen to Black people. If America had started listening to Black people a long time ago, how the insurrection has been handled and navigated and reflected upon would be different. And I know that because when you watch the news media, mainstream news media, versus when you watch Black Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> and how Black people are navigating the insurrection versus the way in which mainstream media on, on whatever side is navigating the insurrection. Black folks like, told you. <laughs> and white folks like, or mainstream media is like, how could this have happened? Um, like, and, and why is this so different? And how did we get, and this like, it's just like the way in which we even look at what happened on January 6th and process that on the tips of the tongues of white folks on news media was civil war. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, we may be going into a civil war. Right. Black folks were like, we just wanna let white folks destroy themselves and then we go figure out how we wanna be free. <laughs> like, so I think, I think, um, and, and, and I say that, that jokingly to some extent, um, but there is deep truth in being able to listen to the people who have been most marginalized and oppressed in our society. Um, and then um, asking, how do you see the world? How do you see, like, how should we move? How should, like, what's the wisdom? Like, we should be going to our elders for wisdom, not electing our elders in the office. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wow. And so we, we, we need to be taking seriously 
um, the voices of the people who have been historically oppressed, because then and only then we'll, we'll have a glimpse and understand um, what peace, the imagination of peace should be and what and how hope can get us there. Um, but yeah, I think a non, non-Black people should start listening to Black people if you haven't started already. And Black people need to start asking themselves, what does Black liberation look like? And then for the folks in between who've already started listening to Black people and who are not Black, I think it's okay for them to ask themselves as well, what does Black liberation look like? Mm. Um, because I, I, I think that's important. Again, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, more than the Hebrews were delivered. Right. Um, and so it's important to be able to be thinking of that vision of what does it look like when Black people in the United States of America are free? And that is a question that even internationally people can be asking. Mm-hmm. Um, what does Black liberation look like? Because the phenomena of race and, and racial injustice exists internationally. It looks different. It feels different. Um, and, and, and even we talked about this, my story in the beginning about traveling internationally, I learned that I was black American because I traveled internationally as a teenager. I knew the power of my passport since the age of 14. Wow. I, I knew that being African American or being black in America, uh, or African descendants of slaves is now what we say ADOS, mm-hmm. um, is very different than being from Zambia or from South Africa or Kenya, like it's different. And so how do I accept and acknowledge those differences, but also accept and acknowledge the ways in which we are similar and have experiences that um, intersect? How do we stand in solidarity, but then also acknowledge the fact that the kind of oppression that we experience in the United States historically is arguably one of the worst forms of racism that the world has yep. has seen absolutely so, so how can uh people connect with you with the work that you're doing and how absolutely. can people support you so we are looking for one million donors one million donors to at least give each a dollar um, because in our work at the george floyd global memorial it really all is about people over property and the people building the memorial and we want it to be accessible even to children, to be donors, to be founding donors. Um, and so people being able to just give a dollar and we want this place to be built by the people and not just one large generous donation from a person or institution. Uh, the offerings were from people all over the world. And therefore we believe that the people all over the world should have a chance to say, we want this institution to exist. This is the people's institution. So yeah, million donor campaign, uh, go to georgefloydglobalmemorial.org and you can uh, be one by giving one. Be <laughs> one, give one. I love that. I love that. So, Is there other ways yeah. people can meet, um, connect with you or should they just go through that website? Uh, my Instagram, Facebook, uh, all social media handles are at Janelle Austin. I'm terrible with social media. You'll rarely ever see me on there. Just know that I'm taking care of somebody's offering. <laughs> um, but you can email me at welcome at raiofjustice.com. Welcome at rayofjustice.com. Raiofjustice.com. Um, I'm pretty good with, with emails. And you can come visit. Come visit the George Floyd Global Memorial, Intersection 38th in Chicago. I'll I, see you there. I'm doing that when we... Nice. 
clear to yes. clear to travel for sure. Thank you so much, Janelle. You have been just you've just taught us today. I mean, just so many different things. And yes. I've been looking forward to interviewing you and just talking with you, hearing more of what you what you've been doing. Aaron? Yes. Thank you so much, Janelle. Definitely learned a lot. More things for me to just sit back and think on too. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, everyone, that this has been uh, this episode of the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing from you in the very near future. Take care, everyone. Disruptive.